0: Thank you for that prayer, Eddie. Hey, good morning, church. So good to see those of you in person, and thank you for all of you joining us online today. Uh, 2024, we are spending 52 weeks in the Gospels, so the first six weeks of the year, and today is week six. We're spending time how the Gospels end. We're talking about the ending of the Gospels. You can open up your Bibles today, the very end of Matthew chapter 28. Though I'm going to reference how Mark ends and how Luke ends and how John ends. We'll spend a few moments here and just a little while in Matthew 28, so you can be turning in your Bibles there. Uh, We've called the first six weeks of the year Purpose. I think the gospels end in wanting us to have purpose. And purpose is found nowhere else in the world, nowhere else in your life than in and through Jesus. Jesus helps to find purpose, to give purpose for our identity and our mission. Uh, This past Wednesday, I had a chance to spend three and a half hours with elders and leaders from our church here. I had a breakfast with a few leaders as we studied the Gospel of John. I had a lunch with a couple of ministers and a few elders as we uh, just pursued the heart of God together. And then after church Wednesday night, I had another meeting, uh, gathering with a few elders as we continued a different group of studying the Gospel of John together. So three and a half hours of my Wednesday was not spent in meetings with leaders of this church thinking about church structure or how to keep ministries afloat. It was three and a half hours of prayer, of studying John and seeking Jesus together. Now, I had a couple of elders that I was with on Wednesday. I do not think they are old, but they are in their 70s and early 80s. All right, And to see them be sponges in the presence of God. To be their age, yet still they are asking questions of wanting to know Jesus in deeper ways. The prayers they pray, the way they're reading the Bible, the questions they ask, how they're engaging in community. I can only hope that when I'm 80 years old that I have that kind of faith, that I still have more I want to learn from Christ that I'm still trying to define or, or to seek what God's purpose is for me in and through Jesus in the world. And I know that God can wake people up at the age of 80 and can give them this desire and this stirring to pursue Jesus and to try to live for purpose with Christ. But I also know that the practices I develop in my life right now are helping to set the tone for who I will be when I am 80 as I pursue Jesus. There's a woman in this church, she sends me a message every week, almost every week of her life, and she gives me things to pray for. And the prayers she's praying are for her neighbors and it's for relatives and it's her kids and her grandkids that they will know Jesus better. And I can only hope that when I'm 70 and 80 years old, I am reaching out to people with faith that God is still moving in the lives of people I love and in the world that I believe in the intervention of God. But I know most likely that how I will pray when I'm 80 That i'm forming practices right now in my life that will form and shape who i will be and how i will pray when i'm 70 and 80 and hopefully 90 years old right now i hope that god has given you purpose in life i want to speak into just a couple of things it is february it's black history month rev 79 thank you so much for uh everything you set up for us there's history there's inspiration there's food today it's an incredible job uh, that you have done. Uh, I have a 16 and a 14 year old and every February we try to generate healthy conversations in our family as we reflect on the past as we think about the future and as we continue to think about ways that God needs to heal and is in the process of healing racial relations here in the United States and throughout the world. Uh, we have uh, chosen now our boys have been in three different schools they've been in uh, um, Sycamore View's Parents Day Out program both of my boys were there they were in Shelby uh, or, um, uh, Snowden Elementary and Snowden Middle School. We were there for eight years, and we've been at Harding now. Uh, we're on year three. We have intentionally chosen to put our kids in environments where there is a diverse setting, both with race and economics. Like, as parents, like we, we wanted to be strategic that our kids are not always in all-white settings. We wanted them in settings where they were with people who may look a little different and have different experiences than them. So especially at Snowden Elementary and Snowden Middle School, every February, they had to do a black history project. So back in, I don't know if this was 2013 or 2014, True, and he was a kindergartner, maybe a first grader, and you'll see this picture right here. He chose to do a black history project with our very own Patrick Parson. This is at probably six years old, and we had given him one or two questions to ask, but then we encouraged True like, come up with your own questions. What do you want to ask Patrick? Now, Patrick's been in the military for years. At this time, he was working with the MPD. He was a Memphis police officer. So they sat down, and Truett's first question was, Patrick, do you ever get scared? And which Patrick's response was, every single day I get scared. And then Patrick said, every day I put bad guys in jail. And if you don't obey your mom and dad, um, I'm just joking. Patrick, he, he did not go there, all right? So Truitt kept asking him questions, and then uh, you can show this last, the, the next picture. It's just, uh, you know, we grab this. But then there was the Black History Project, and you can go to, to this next slide right here. And the Black His- History Project, Truitt had to summarize this conversation with Patrick. And if you go to the next one, it zooms in just a little bit. And here's what it says. Mr. Patrick is a policeman and a first sergeant in the Army. He protects us from bad guys. He loves Jesus and the Grizzlies. And, <laughs> And it's like, what else do you need in the world, right? What else do you need in the 901? Blessings as you continue to develop practices in your life, just to reflect and to celebrate progress that's been made, and in a month like this, for us to ask God and to pray, where are you still calling us to be a part of progress as we move into the future? Wednesday night, we have a special worship service here. We call it a night of repentance. I would love for you to try to attend in person. If you're not able to make it in person, come and join us online. I know there are more and more people both in our church and just in Christianity around the world who are honoring some of the seasons of the year, maybe like Advent or or Lent. So Lent begins on Wednesday and more of you are, are choosing to honor and participate in Lent in some way. And if you were choosing to do this, I would love for you to increase my prayer life over the next few weeks. If you're choosing to engage in Lent, uh, I would love for you to shoot me a text message, an email. You can send me a letter, a telegram, whatever it is. All right, Just give me a way I can, I can pray for you over the next few weeks. I would love to do that. Look, here's the deal. Heaven's going to be full of people one day who never honored Lent, who may never, didn't even know what Lent means. But here's what I also believe in a conviction I have, is that if you want to be serious about spiritual growth and transformation of formation and maturity in your life, you have to have some seasons of deep reflection. Maybe what Celebrate Recovery calls uh, taking inventory of your life. And sometimes this can't happen in a two-minute prayer time. It happens in seasons where we give God the space and the time to reveal some things in us that need to change. Some idols maybe that we have allowed in our lives that God needs to destroy and that God can restore us to his purposes. So Wednesday night is going to start this journey for us and we'd love for you to jump in and participate. All right, so all the gospels end with some kind of commissioning. Some kind of invitation into the life of Christ. So when Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, when they end their Gospels, they don't end by saying, do you want to applause because did you like the story? That's not how they end. It ends with invitation. Invitation into worship. Invitation into service. Invitation into relationship with Christ. So uh, a while back, we released a video on baptism. I'm going to show you this video again, and I'll tell you why. Because what we try to do in this video is to create content that both informed and inspired. And what I like about the content that we created, and I love how God uses some of the things that God helps create in the life of this church, because this video has been shown by churches and in conferences all around the world, and there are people, because of this video, who have come to know Jesus because of it. So I would just want us to think about... What the baptized life calls us to, because baptism is not just information for those who have never been baptized, it means something for those of us who have. So I want you to see this, watch this again, share this with friends. This is a video that's meant to be shown and experienced in community. So if you send this to someone because they are interested in Christ, or they're thinking about baptism, or they're processing what their baptism meant, you need to engage them in community. Let them see it, but then follow up with conversations. Does that make sense? All right, so we're going to watch this and I'm going to continue the sermon right after this. I was walking in ancient Philippi when I came upon an early church baptistry. And as I was standing next to this baptistry, I could look out and I could see the marketplace and the pagan temples like this baptistry was like right in the hub of the city. And to think what that must have meant for early Christians who were being baptized and they could see and they could hear all of this noise around them. And I'm sure for them, they even thought in the moment, okay, it doesn't matter what kind of social pressure may come at me because of this decision or what physical persecution, like I'm going for Jesus. I am stepping into Jesus. I love some of the images in early Christianity when there were baptistries that there would be an entrance and an exit. Like there was a way into the water, but then there was an exit out of the water. And this wasn't just logistics. It wasn't like, hey, we just have so many people, we have to have an entrance and an exit. For them, what they were saying was, if I am moving into the future with God, how I enter into the water, I'm not going back the same way I came in. Like I'm not going back to that way of life. If there is new creation, I'm moving forward. I'm moving into the future with God. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, It says that salvation is found in no other name but Jesus. So baptism doesn't save people. Jesus saves people. And there's nothing miraculous about the waters of baptism, but there is something miraculous in the moment of baptism. The baptism is a place of divine connection. And I think Jesus wants his church to have a high view of baptism because it is a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus was baptized He was baptized out of an act of obedience, and he was baptized because he was launching a movement. It's like Jesus wanted people to know then and people to know now, like I have set an example for you that we step into the waters, we surrender ourselves to the will of God, and then we move forward into the future as a movement that can change the entire world. Jesus is serious about inviting people into the waters of baptism and inviting them out of the waters of baptism. Jesus invites people into the waters of baptism. Here's why. In Romans chapter 6, the way it's said there is that in baptism, we are united with Christ in his death and we are united with Christ in his life, like in his resurrection. It's, it's marriage language. It's like Jesus is saying, hey, I, have, I am saying yes to you. I am stepping into this relationship, and I have accomplished everything that is needed for this relationship. I am saying yes to you. Will you say yes to me? Will you say yes to this relationship? Will you say yes to this commitment? Will you say yes to this mission? And in Romans 6, it also talks about how in baptism, we are buried with Christ. So in this church and in many churches around the world for for 2,000 years, we have practiced immersion. Like we go fully under the water. We are all in. And in doing this, what we are saying is we are surrendering everything we are to the will of God. Our bodies are going under the water, our minds, the past, the future, like our intentions, our motives, like everything we are is fully surrendered to, to Jesus in baptism. In 1 Peter chapter 3, the way it talks about it there is that in baptism our hearts are cleansed and our conscience is cleansed because God wants people to live with confidence of their salvation and of their commitment to Jesus. So Jesus has a really high view of inviting people into the waters of baptism so for those who are like taking steps to Jesus, but they haven't been baptized yet, what I, what I often ask them and what I would want to ask you is like, why would you not want to step into this gift? Why would you not want to step into this moment with Jesus? So Jesus invites people into the waters of baptism, but Jesus also invites people from the waters to go and live a life with purpose. Now, the way I've heard this said before is that the New Testament actually argues from baptism more than the New Testament argues for baptism. Now, in making that statement, it's actually elevating what baptism means. So to have a high view of baptism, you see that the New Testament is, is mostly written to baptize people. So a lot of those places like Romans 6 or 1 Corinthians 12 or, Gal- or Galatians 3, it's not arguments of why people need to be baptized. It's because you've been baptized, here's the kind of life you are called to live. Because you've been baptized, we love our neighbors and we love our enemies differently. Because we've been baptized, we unite with one another out of reverence for Jesus. Like we are the body of Christ. Because we have been baptized, we we move into this mission. We live a life with purpose. So Jesus is the one who invites people into the water and he invites them out of the water to be a part of a movement that changes the world. In early Christianity, you could go through the catacombs and even today, you can see all these images of art. Now in early Christianity, most people, like everybody didn't have a Bible they could read. So there was preaching and there was teaching and art was used to educate and to instruct. And these dozens of images of baptisms, there are two elements you'll find in all of them, every single one that you find. One is the image of a dove that hovers over the person who is being baptized, representing the Holy Spirit descending upon the person being baptized. And the other is a hand that is over them, which represents the hand of God upon the person being baptized. And for early Christians, what they would teach is this, that what God did for Jesus in his baptism is what God does for you too. That there is a promise of the forgiveness of sins, of being united with Christ and of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. So when ancient Philippi, think about it. You're being baptized where you can look out and you can see and you can hear all this immorality, knowing that there may be social pressure and even physical persecution that may come after you. So for them, the thought of baptism, like baptism may not be safe. Baptism may be dangerous. And it wasn't just that their eyes could see everything in the city. It's that through baptism, God was helping people to re-envision what it meant to be a part of the city. Then now you have a renewed purpose to live as new creation and to see that this city, the Philippi, that other cities, these are places where God has called the church and has called people to be the light of God everywhere we go. Baptism is not just about status change. It is invitation into a movement that can change the entire world. Last weekend, I had the privilege of speaking at the Park Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So I did a a men's retreat for them Friday and Saturday. I stayed over and I preached in both of their worship services Sunday morning. So Friday night, I had two sessions with a group of a few hundred men, and we ate meat all day long. Uh, I had the meat sweats when I preached, all right? There wasn't a vegetable that my body saw for over a day after preaching twice, I went home, I was in the guest room uh, at this house where I was staying. I'm on the phone with Casey at 11.15 last Friday night, and everything began to shake. And as everything was shaking, what was going through my head was, first of all, was uh, it's thunder, but it lasted about 15 seconds. So I ruled out thunder. And then I thought their washer and dryer was off, because, I mean, some of your dryers like shake the whole house sometimes too, right? And I thought maybe a jet was flying low, and then it hit me after a few seconds, I'm in an earthquake right now. A 5.1 earthquake. I, I, I had never experienced an earthquake before that I know. Now, as a preacher, I try not to exaggerate stories, but I'll let you in on this. Here's how this story is going to go. Right now, I'm telling you I experienced an earthquake. But in five years when I tell this story, when I'm preaching Acts chapter 4, when people prayed and every play, all around them it was shaken, or when God encounters the prophet Elijah and God came in an earthquake, in five years when I tell the story, I'm going to talk about how I survived an earthquake back in 2024. And 10 years when I tell this story, I'm going to start off with I had a near-death experience, all right? That's just how it's going to go. So you can imagine the joke Saturday and Sunday morning when I got up to preach. Well, Josh came to preach, and he brought an earthquake with him, all right? California had an earthquake a couple of days ago. It was a 4.5, and I was like, ah, whatever, man, the 4.5. I've been through a 5.1, all right? Sunday morning, I showed up at church. They have two services, a lot like we, when we had two services pre-COVID, the early service has the large majority of the church that shows up. Second service, really small group of people. They bring great energy, small group of people. So first service, they are like 1,500 people in a room that can hold 1,800. I uh, just wanna, want you to have a visual. Second service is about 18, a room that can hold 1,800. hundred. are about 300, so it feels like a ghost town. The stage is pretty high off the ground, so it's easy to overlook the people sitting right down in front of you. So before I got up for second service, the preacher, my buddy Mitch, he was like, hey, I want you to notice when you're preaching today, and I was preaching on the Holy Spirit and about freedom. On the third row, there's gonna be a row of women, and I don't want you to overlook that row row of women. It is a row of women who have all come to know Christ through a recovery program, and all those women have experienced deep forms of abuse as they've been abused by men and used by men for years of their life. And there's one woman who was just recently baptized, and for her, she had never been given a vision of a healthy marriage, or even what marriage was. Like the idea of being in a relationship that was nurturing and where there was nourishment and righteousness and care was so, like she had no place to put that in her heart or her mind. Like no one in all of her life had given her a vision for what marriage could be or what God wanted for marriage. So for her, it was forms of abuse and being used that led her into other forms of addiction. And then she was invited to know who Jesus was. And as somebody was sharing her about Christ, they were sharing with her about baptism, about Romans chapter 6, and about how Jesus calls the church the bride of Christ, which totally blew her mind. that That the Son of God, the man who walked this earth as God, thinks about his relationship with you and his relationship with us as a marriage. And for her to think... That there may be no man who would want to marry her because the things she has done and what she has gone through to know that God in flesh wants to marry people blew her mind. So when she decided to say yes to Jesus in baptism, she says, I want to be baptized, but I want to be in a wedding dress when I'm baptized. So what would you do? Because, look, I've never bought a wedding dress for anybody, but I don't think you just go down to Target and buy a $20 one. So the women in that church did what I think the women in this church would do. Within a couple of days, they made her her very own wedding dress. And she put the wedding dress on and stepped into the waters of baptism, believing that Jesus made her right and made her whole and made her righteous. And she celebrated a wedding. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is not the end of the story, it's the beginning of ours. That as we join Jesus in these moments, it's not the end of a story, it's the very beginning of a story. So when the Gospels end, the Gospels don't end with credits rolling and asking for applause, the Gospels end by asking for belief and for action. So so I want you to think just for a moment, when you finish a book, if you ever read a book, if you finish a movie, which you probably watch a movie, what do you do when it comes to an end? So I got a preacher buddy in Nashville, his wife, and occasionally she likes to, to work puzzles, takes up the whole dining room table. So sometimes this takes days or weeks, sometimes months, that she's working a puzzle on the dining room table, maybe a thousand-piece puzzle. And at first he thought it was really cool, and then he hated the whole idea of it because he couldn't stand what would happen when his wife would come to the end of a puzzle. She would finish the puzzle, put that piece in, she would stand up, shrug her shoulders, give a few head nods, and then just tear it up and put it back in a box. And my buddy who's an Enneagram 3, all right, for him what he's thinking is, dude, when you finish a puzzle, we got to call our friends over. You need to post a bunch of selfies. Take pride in this. Let everybody see it. Let it sit out for a while because you worked hard for it. So when you finish a good movie, there's only been one movie I've ever seen where applause broke out at the very end. It was The Passion of the Christ. Just the other night, Casey and I were at the Orpheum with David and Teresa watching Les Mis. When it was over, there was applause. And the applause lasted for a few seconds, I don't know, for a little bit. And then your mind goes to, we've got to get to the parking garage so we can beat the traffic. So when you finish a book or you finish a movie or you finish some form of, like you're at some form of entertainment for most of us, you may think about it, you may leave a Google review about it, you may post about it. Probably within a few days, you're not thinking much about it. But when the Gospels end, it's not about credits rolling or applause or just moving on to the next book to read in life. The Gospels end by asking for belief and action and will you become a part of the story. So I want you to see how all the Gospels end. I'm about to just show you the very last verse or maybe the last two verses in all four Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they tell the story of Jesus. They all end with death, burial, and resurrection. Here's how John ends in John chapter 21. The very last verse in the gospel of John says this. Jesus did many other things as well. And if every one of them are written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. It's, John way of, it's his way of saying, like, you don't even know all the things Jesus did. Like if I were to write, I had no room for everything. Because I think a part of John also was, I'm going to be processing the things I've seen Jesus do for the rest of my life. The big things, the small things. That Jesus is doing things in the world today that it would take book after book for us to try to collect all the stories. He wants, you to end, he wants his gospel just to leave you with amazement that Jesus has been on the move and he is on the move. And the Gospel of Luke, the last two verses, it ends with this. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Luke ends the gospel, and his gospel is full of action. His gospel is Jesus is the one, uh, he's a champion of the underdog. There's compassion and there's justice, yet it ends in a place of worship and devotion to Christ. Which may be Luke's way of saying, before I get to the book of Acts, what I want you to know is we can be all about compassion and justice and championing the underdog just like Jesus, but it's the place of worship that roots us in the heart of God so that we have something to give to the world. Now, Mark has two different endings. This drives people nuts. If you're reading your Bible for the first time, you're going to read Mark. And most likely, you're going to read like a shorter ending and a longer ending. Most believe that the ending of Mark, the original ending, was in verse 8. When it says, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And that's how the gospel ended. It ended with fear. So, so down the road, people like added on to it. They're like, we need a better ending than just people ending in fear. So later on, they're in, and I believe that God inspired this, but the ending that, that's, if you look in the book of Mark, the last two verses, it says this. The disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed His word by the signs that accompanied it. Now, here, the last two verses, it's Jesus has already ascended into the heavens, but there's a promise of the divine presence of Jesus that is still at work in and through us, even though his body has ascended. Now, in verse 8, it does end with fear, which I think is a way for this story to become our story. And for them, they did end with fear. There was a lot of fear. And it's not that that Mark is ending in verse 8 by saying, hey, if you have faith, it will just drown out all fear. It may be a way of saying, there are a lot of reasons to be afraid, but we're not going to let fear paralyze us from living as people of faith in the world. So take hold of this story and run with it, even in a world that may have reasons to be afraid. And in Matthew chapter 28... It ends with what we've looked at multiple times over the last few weeks with the Great Commission. And the last verse you get in Matthew 28 is, this is Jesus, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The Gospels don't end with credits rolling, but with acknowledgement of Jesus' life, presence, work, and mission. So I want to look just a little closer at Matthew 28. I want to point out two things real quick. If you go to this next slide right here, you'll see them. I think I have it underlined. I want to to just point out two things for you in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. And the first thing I want to point out is this phrase, in the name. In the name. You are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about in the name. So if you want to circle in your Bible, highlight it. Let's talk about it. Now, I've made it this far in my sermon without mentioning the Super Bowl or Taylor Swift. Vegas has put the line tonight, I think at eight of how many times Taylor Swift will be shown on the TV. That seems really low to me, all right? Now, she's on a plane right now coming from Japan. Some of you are following her flight. She'll probably land in plenty of time. It's going to be fine. Now, Travis Kelsey, who Taylor Swift is dating, has been really famous for years. Arguably one of the best tight ends. Not just playing right now, but ever. But I don't know if Travis Kelsey has made Taylor Swift more popular at all. But Taylor Swift has definitely made Travis Kelsey more popular all over the world. His jersey sales have increased by 400%. Who knows how many new commercials he's going to get with State Pharma, who knows who else, because Taylor Swift has like put her name on his name. Now, you could buy a Kelsey jersey, and you could wear it, and you could go today and commit a crime at McDonald's with the Kelsey jersey, but it's not going to have much of an impact on Travis Kelsey's life at all. You could wear a jersey with his name, and maybe he and Taylor get engaged later on tonight, or here in a few weeks, and get married, and, and... when they die, years from now, you are not going to get anything from their inheritance at all. Even if you have the jersey with the name. You could wear the name Kelsey or the name Swift on a shirt or a jersey, yet never choose to rep the name. Like You, you are not being asked to steward that name. And what's happened around the world is there are people who wear the name Christianity or Christian, but they don't wake up every day to rep the name, to represent the name, to steward the name. When we are baptized into the name of Jesus, this isn't just a name you wear on a shirt or a jersey. This is a name that becomes your identity and your mission. And when you are invited to rep it, to steward it, like it means something for how we live. Now, we are not asked in Matthew chapter 28 to go into the world and to make disciples and to baptize people into the name of churches of Christ or Baptists or Methodists or Lutheran or anyone else. You're not asked to baptize into a name that's on a sign. We're not going to enter into the judgment day with God one day and be asked about a denominational name. It is that we are in the name of Jesus. Think about, live this week. You are in his name. Represent the name. And I want you to notice this other phrase that I have underlined in bold italics on here. And this is Jesus talking. He says, I need you to go into the world. And as you make disciples and as you baptize people into the name, I want you to teach them everything that I have taught you so that they will obey it. I don't think this is Jesus minimizing everything else that is written in the Bible. I think Jesus believes that all the Bible is God-breathed. It's inspired by God. But here, Jesus sure is elevating his own teachings and his life. So if you want to be a passionate follower of Jesus, I encourage you to have regular disciplines in your life that has you engaging the life and teachings of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And how are you putting yourself in a position to be taught by the greatest teacher of all? I want you to think about... um, when you've been in classrooms or in places in your life, when you have been taught, just for a moment. And have you ever had a teacher who was really good with content, but they weren't really good in one-on-one relationships at all? Good teachers, they knew their stuff, but they're not somebody you wanted to sit, sit down with and talk about life. Does anybody come to mind? And did you have any teachers growing up, or some of you have any teachers right now who are really good in one-on-one relationships, like they're good with students, but they're not really good with the content they teach? And have you ever had a teacher in your life who wasn't good with content and they weren't good in relationships? And if you're being homeschooled in the room, please do not point at your mom and dad right now, all right? And maybe you have had a teacher in your life who was really good with their content. They knew their stuff. And they were really good in relationships. Jesus has content that you need to feed you every day of your life. And Jesus provides the relationship that dispenses love into your life and presence in your life everywhere you go. What I want you to know today is that when the gospels end, They don't end with credits rolling, asking for applause. The Gospels end by asking for allegiance. The Gospels don't end and ask for you to leave a Google review or to put a thumbs up. The Gospels end by inviting you to become a part of the story. The Gospels don't end with you closing the book. The Gospels end with you opening the book to live into it in deeper ways. will you stand with me? Go ahead and stand here in just a moment. I'm going to say a prayer and we're going to be invited to the table. And for those of you who may be a guest in the room, we have six tables around the room with the bread and the cup. And if you follow the crowds, this is a moment of just divine and communal connection for us. And I want to ask if you will, close your eyes and bow your heads. And if you're willing, just open your hands where you are. I often tell you my heart often follows where my posture takes it. And will you just receive the blessing of God today? That at the end of the gospel of John, Jesus says this, peace be with you. And my prayer and my blessing over you today is that the peace of God will be abundant in your life. And it may not be a peace that drives out all anxiety or depression or grief. It may be a peace that joins you in it. And my prayer and blessing today is that the same Jesus in John 20 and Matthew 28 who said, I send you into the world. I want you to know today that God does not reluctantly save you and God does not reluctantly send you. That God is passionate about saving people and God is passionate about using every person God saves. So know today that the sending of God into this world, into the community is on you. And God believes you have what it takes. May the death, burial, and resurrection and the commissioning of Christ do something to you today as God sends you and as God reminds you that his presence will go with you everywhere you go. So here in just a few moments, you're invited to the table. We'll have... uh, uh, Joe and Brent, two of our elders, will be, uh, shepherds will be in the front and the back to receive you. And Jenna and Leverneese will be on the side walls to receive you for prayer. And we are here to pray with you, whatever you may be going through, or to be a voice if you need to celebrate something God has done in your life. And on the screen is going to be three statements that I've written for us as we declare our allegiance to Christ today and as we try to live that out this week. So God, right now, in your presence, we just want to say thank you for everything you have done to win us to you. So Jesus, all the ways you have saved us and redeemed us, we take the bread and the cup today, and we do not take this in vain. We take it with hearts full of gratitude, and as we take it, we pray that you will transform our hearts into your image, and that you will use us this week to shine your light in this world. And it's in the power of the name of Jesus, and the whole church said, Amen.